Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. How are you this week? You doing well? Yeah? Yeah, long weekend for some of you. Uh, going okay? Have some fun? We had a great week last week. Uh, uh, Jeremy and Dusty for the last couple weeks, you know, have been talking on Revelation. I'm so grateful for the messages they brought. They've been really good messages. And I've had a little bit of time off to plan and work ahead and some stuff. And then I had a little bit of stay, staycation this last week while my daughter was home from college. My, my son didn't come home. He went backpacking in North Dakota. Was intending to do 100 miles in five days. And we don't know the story, but they cut that short, I guess. <laughs> 100 miles in five days, I guess, is a little much. Anyway, we're here back talking about Revelation today. And it's, uh, today and next week, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach to it. We're going to look at chapters two and three. We're going to explore some questions that I think really relate very strongly to us today as, an individu- as individuals and as a church. In these chapters, John is recording Jesus' words to seven churches in Asia Minor. All of these churches were birthed out of the Ephesian church, where Paul was the pastor, followed by Timothy, who who he wrote to, and then uh, actually the Apostle John, the disciple closest to Jesus, assumed pastoring that church after Timothy, as history has it. And in these texts, Jesus compliments uh, very strongly, almost every one of the churches, not everyone, and he also gives a strong corrective word to almost all of the churches to help them recover from what I would only describe as a spiritual malaise, just kind of a down that's going on somewhere in their life as a follower of Jesus. Now, when I read this text in my teens and my 20s and 30s, I was, I was always puzzled by it for, for two, two, two reasons. I mean, there's some pretty strong words. This is, this is kind of a strong topic. It's kind of hard to preach about this without it feeling like it's strong. But, but the other part of it was I always had the question, how could churches who were planted by Paul, pastored by Jesus' closest disciple, taught by Peter and other greats of the faith who saw profound miracles so quickly go from being vibrant and healthy and wonderful to stuck, struggling, falling away from their passion for Jesus and maybe even some of them in decline. I mean, it doesn't make sense. How can that be? I mean, I, I put myself in there and I think if I had experienced Paul and Timothy, John and Peter and Apollos and all these people whose names we still know 2,000 years later teaching me and I've experienced all these miracles, I couldn't imagine becoming distant uh, or unhealthy as a church so quickly. But then age hits, doesn't it? Hits us all, doesn't it? And as I've gotten older and seeing things over a longer period of time and, and had the privilege for 11 years working as a consultant with hundreds of, 100 churches or more and seeing new churches planted and seeing thriving churches, once booming churches, start to become ineffective and, and some even dying, I guess I understand a whole lot better what goes on and, and how this can happen and how this does happen to every single church. But it's more than just churches because church isn't our organization. Church isn't what we do here right now. Church is you and I. 
And as I get older and as I, as I've personally had a lot more of experiences and as I, and as I've watched more people over a longer period of time, church really only reflects the individual challenges we have in having a long lasting, vibrant life and faith. Whether it's faith in life or whether it's a long-lasting, vibrant marriage, better than just getting along, or a long-lasting friendship, or a long-lasting, vibrant career, or, or, or even church, a long-lasting part of being in a church instead of feeling like we have to bounce around to find some new excitement every few years. See, in my 20s and 30s and even into my 40s, most things in life went well. Even the frustrating, challenging things in life were kind of exciting, kind of new, kind of fresh, kind of interesting. You know, I mean, think about it. As you as you collect more experiences in life, though, staying vibrant becomes more and more difficult. Because what once was new, exciting, a challenge for growth now becomes another lap around the block of the same type of pressure-filled, sometimes hurtful experience. You see, solving big problems in work or in family life for the first time is, or even maybe the second time, is kind of invigorating. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of challenging. I mean, I remember the first time there was a church, big church split attempt and I was the one responsible for trying to resolve it. I remember the first time I had to personally be responsible for intervening with someone who was suicidal. I remember the first time I had a, a homicidal counseling person that I had to work with. I remember the first time I sat in a, in a room with, with a couple that, where there was strong abuse going on and I, I had to figure out how to help them. I remember the first financial crisis I faced or the first rapidly growing workplace that grew so fast it put tons of fast change in place and pressure from that. And I remember building a cam- the first building campaign or grant proposal and I remember the first big fight in marriage. And I remember the first big wish I could take that back moment as a parent that I had to then figure out how I'm going to make this right and how I'm going to resolve this and make it and grow through this. And I remember the first big in-law conflict. And we all have these firsts that are kind of exciting, maybe even exhilarating, fascinating or challenging because even if they're sad, even if they're difficult problems, there's this kind of curious invitation to it of saying, yeah, I can face that. I can deal with that. I'm up to that task. But by the second, third, or eighth, or tenth time, you face a similar situation, especially the ones that are repeated problems that hurt or the ones that slow you down in your goals in life. It becomes draining to face it, doesn't it? It, Even if we still get positive results in the way we face it, it just becomes draining. How many of you can relate to that, especially as you get older? Some of you maybe are too young to relate to that now, so just listen to this and file it away today. The older I got, the more and more friends I had and the more and more mentors I had where I was able to see them nearing the end of their work life. And I got to tell you, the majority of them didn't finish well. I I couldn't say their faith, that their passion for making a difference in life was stronger, more passionate, more meaningful, more powerful in the end than it was in the beginning. And I asked myself, why? Why is that? Why Why does that happen to so many people who were once passionate, vibrant people, even leaders? You may have seen it in parents or uncles or aunts or... Maybe you've been around an aging pastor or maybe you've been around a boss nearing retirement. But see, it's even more personal than that to us. It's, it's as I get older, 
as you get older. We start asking questions. Why is it so much harder to keep my passion fully alive? And why is it so much more threatened by tiredness from difficulty and setback in life? Why do we sometimes feel the need to move on to something new or need a change instead of just being really happy and vibrant right where we're at in life? Why do sometimes we want uh, others to deal with the tough stuff and have an increasing desire for ourselves to just kind of go off into the sunset of ease and maybe mentor some people at a distance but not really have to face the tough stuff in life anymore? See, the more I see, the more I wrestle personally with those things. Revelation 2 and 3 become much more real, much more relatable, much more practical, much more insightful and challenging and powerful. We're going to focus on the next two weeks only on three of the seven churches. And Jesus makes a profound invitation to these, to us in these to change. And if we respond to his invitation, it greatly increases the likelihood that we will be more vibrant as we grow older and we will finish well. Today we're going to look at the two churches, Ephesus and Sardis. And we're going to discover as we look at them the power of history. History has power, and Jesus highlights this as something that can positively invite us to remember and be guided and motivated by that memory today. But Jesus also in this text confronts an unhealthy focus related to our history and remembering that we all too easily fall prey to as well. And it's important because our history, the good and the bad, the success and the failure, the times we've been affirmed and the times we've been put down, the times we've experienced healing and we've experienced pain and we've experienced joy and sadness, over time as we accumulate more and more of those kinds of experiences, history can either become, our history can either become this heavy weight that burdens us and wearies us, or it can become the thing that causes us to burn with more passion to make a difference today in our faith and our life. So let's look at the text. Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false, and that you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is really a great church, right? Great people doing right, persevering in difficulty. They're pursuing pure doctrine, which just simply means they're still letting God define for them right and wrong instead of letting themselves and culture define what's right and wrong. These are good, solid, salt-of-the-earth people. But Jesus has a corrective word to them. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider, recall, remember how far you've fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And that was a heretical sect during that day that combined immoral sexual practices with the practice of Christianity. Whoever has ears, Jesus goes on and says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now that's Ephesus. Uh, Revelation 3 is Sardis, and Sardis is actually the picture of Ephesus if it does not turn around. This is where Ephesus, what Ephesus will become. And Jesus has really nothing good to say about the church at Sardis as a whole. It says this, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation. You have a history 
of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished. They're not complete. They're not whole in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why don't we pause and just pray that prayer to God right now. Lord, we ask that you would come and that you would give us soft hearts, ears to hear, a mind to comprehend, Lord, how you want to say both affirming things to us and how you want to maybe correct us so that we can find the vibrance of life and the passion of life that you so desperately want to give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to tackle these texts. It's a lot of texts. We're going to tackle it from two perspectives. We're going to, I'm going to try to give you a very quick overall summary of the problem. And then we're going to go back and look at the specific invitations Jesus makes to us. And we're going to contrast that with a little bit more depth of a look at the problem as well. So first, a quick summary of the problem. Ephesus is still this active, growing, influential church. They're doing good deeds. They planted all the churches mentioned in these two chapters. There are the growing, the multiplying, the respected, the studied model church of its day. Everyone knows about them. And Jesus says to them, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. See, they've become this growing, doing church where love has worn off and where duty, and duty is really important in life, right? We understand the importance of duty to a vital life, but duty has become more and more the motivation of their life and not love. It's like a loveless, faithful marriage where we get along, we still raise a good family, we're still successful We're kind to each other, generally speaking. It may even be dutiful about having sex together on a regular basis, but it's not as emotionally connected and passionate as as it once was. Just doing things because it is right. See, in that moment, Jesus' recommendation, we're going to see in a moment, that Jesus' recommendation for us is not to leave, just like leaving a loveless marriage is generally not the right solution. Because duty, duty is actually a good thing, right? Duty is doing the right thing because it's right, regardless of how we feel. And it's a vital core habit we all need to develop in our life in order to even have the hope of having a lasting love in our life. Because duty is the flip side of faithfulness. But great enduring relationship takes Instead of just one coin of a flip side, two coins. Let's read uh, Psalm 85. It was a verse that stuck out to me about two weeks ago in my own devotional time. And, and let me just share it with you. Verse 8 says, I will listen to what God the Lord says. The pr- he promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness, it says, meet together. Love and faithfulness go together. They're the two coins of a great enduring relationship. You see, when we turn to folly in our world today, we, we, we tend to pursue love sexually outside of faithfulness and outside of marriage, and we wonder why we don't find love. It's because the two go together. And the text finishes this way. It says, righteousness and peace. 
they kiss each other. We only find peace when we receive the righteousness that Jesus gives us and then when we continue to follow the Holy Spirit and growing in to learning to do the righteousness he invites us to do in our life. In the Ephesians case, they divorce love from faithfulness. And they're on a trajectory like we so easily get on in life to becoming more and more religious in our actions and less and less passionately in love with God and with others. See, the problem is that when we divorce love from faithfulness, when duty, duty eventually, uh, in the face of difficulty, it wears thin. We just can't keep the duty going in the face of difficulty without something more. And, and we see this difficulty in the affirmation of the Ephesian church, right? They're standing up in the face of persecution. Now, persecution is, I think, too strong of a word for most of our own experiences. I mean, sure, we hear about things like the Roseburg, Oregon shooting of a couple weeks ago, and that's very clear persecution. But for most of us, persecution is really a foreign word. About the most we ever experience is uncomfortable disagreements, right? There's difficult, uncomfortable disagreements, but not not persecution. Yet the truth is that every single Christian faces suffering. If you are a vibrant person with a vibrant faith in some way every single week, you will face suffering. Now that suffering may look in one of two ways. It may be the fact of the suffering of, of you learning to face your own sin and grow in your ability to walk free of it into the righteousness that God wants you to experience, the peace that he wants you to have. But see, we're forgiven, but when we walk out of that, it hurts a lot of times. It's a lot of times, it's a lot like having surgery or physical therapy in order to become whole. It it hurts to constantly face our own stuff and try to grow. There's suffering in that. And the second way we experience is that if we're faithful to the mission God has for us, we will befriend and love people faithfully who frankly, their sin and brokenness will once in a while lash out at us and hurt, or if not lash out at at least a lot of times make like life difficult or tiring or sad or painful. And it's those times when it's sad, when it's painful, when it's difficult, the duty and faithfulness is a good thing to help us stay the course of committed love and to even create an opportunity for that passion of love to be cultivated and return even when we don't feel like it in the moment. But when we don't remember and cultivate that first love over time, faithfulness and duty of the Ephesians or of us becomes more and more tiring. And we will find ourselves not being like the Ephesians continuing to do works, but we'll find ourselves like Sardis doing little and increasingly living off the nostalgia of our own past reputation. There are lots of reasons why we, why we do this. I mean, sometimes the reason is simply the idea that we, we've paid our dues. We worked hard. We faced all this difficult stuff. And now it's time for us to have a little bit easier life. And now it's time for some other people to do this. There's a, a mentor of mine who greatly impacted my own life and hundreds of other, other leaders. He had a great reputation, so much relational capital with people. But as he neared the end of his, his career life, there were some major problems. And he had the relational capital to solve them so easily. He had the reputation and authority to do it, but he just wanted to not stir the pot. He didn't want to deal with the difficult feelings. He just wanted to go off into the sunset feeling good about what he had done. And he leaves his problem to his successor, not wanting to tarnish his own good feeling. How many times have you seen a mentor, a teacher, a pastor, a boss, 
preferring to avoid the difficulty because they just, they paid their dues. They want ease. Instead of using their position and the authority and their history God has given them to continue to make a positive difference in the moment today. See, it's so easy for us to not want to risk that good feeling of a reputation. It makes us feel good. And we just want to coast to the finish line instead of finishing strong. There was a church I worked with extensively a few years back in Tacoma, Washington. And in the late 70s, it was the church to go to in town. It was nearly a 1,000 people in a day when there were very few churches over a 1,000. I don't know if you remember that history. Now we're used to these churches of 10,000. But in my lifetime, a church of a 1,000 would have put you in the top 20 or 30 churches in the nation at one point. And when I got there, there was only 35 left people. And they were longing for the good old days. It was, it was easy to look back on. The, it's so easy in all of our lives to look back on the moments God moved in our past the encounters we've had with him the, the, in church or the encounters and the way he's blessed us in our career or in our marriage and look at all the positive impact and how good it felt. But, but when the history of life builds up and it weighs us down and makes us slower to reengage that passion and we find ourselves dry and we find ourselves aching for the past, wanting to avoid the present and we want to go back. But the problem is life keeps going. And when we don't keep going with it, the Bible teaches that the sin is knocking at the door, pursuing us. The Bible actually says it this way. It says, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, when we succumb to nostalgic, passive living like the church at, nostalgia, at Sardis, we, become, we, we start blaming external things for our present lack of passion and connection. It's the church, or it's the situation, or it's the, it's my boss, or it's, we start blaming other things, and we become the slow and the weak one of the herd, ripe for the taking, and sin and death is knocking at our door. And Jesus is saying to us, wake up, be alert in the moment, stop living in the past, be alert now. You know, why is nostalgia so powerful? Why is it something that's so easy for us to fall into? Well, I, probably lots of reasons, but I think one reason is because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Because of our reputation, we can make ourselves feel good just simply remembering our reputation. Even if we're not doing the stuff in the current time anymore, we, we feel good about it. And if we look at these two churches, Ephesian church has disconnected from love, is heading down the path. They're still doing good works, but they're heading down this duty path, which isn't going to keep them there long. And they're going to eventually become like the Sardis church, where they've not only disconnected from love, but they're disconnecting from present good works as well and beginning to live off of reputation. See, over time, good works in the face of suffering, there's too little risk-reward benefit for us to keep doing it. At some point, we start thinking, well, I'm doing good. Why am I having difficulty? I shouldn't be having good difficulty if I'm having good. And there's just not enough risk-reward in it. We find ourselves less and less relying on what we're doing now and more and more on, we did this in the past, but it's not worth it because when I do good, people don't treat me good, right? We have rose-colored views of past as well. And, and, and so we start thinking, uh, I need this idea of myself to meet this need of value and security within me. I start remembering what I used to do so I can still feel good about myself today when only that passionate, presently active love of God can really truly meet that need to feel secure in the moment today. 
It's like the difference between when you were absolutely passionately thrilled to be in a relationship with someone. Maybe it was like you found your soulmate. They were, they, maybe you're not going to marry them, but they're, you're just they're your best friend. Or maybe the first time you found someone you dramatically fell in love with. And, and you, you remember that time? You just want to listen to them. You just want to hear everything they have to say. You, you're just so excited to listen to them. And then compare that with later on where you start to feel obliged to listen to them and and you still listen, but, you, you know, you, you're not able to get your work done. You've got all this stuff over here, and you just wish this conversation would go a little bit faster. You see, over time, frustration will overpower listening when we're not connected in love with each other. Further, living off our reputation doesn't cut it either because internally we know we're not what our reputation says we are anymore. And we know that. We can't stand that feeling. We fear being found out, and it only accelerates the disconnect and our self-protection that nostalgia gives us. So let's look a little bit more clearly at Jesus' invitations to us and, and talk a little bit more about some of the problems in that light as well. Jesus invites the Ephesian church to remember their first love. He says it this way, consider... That's a rich word. It's, it's this word that recall, remember, feel, grasp, hold it, ponder it, visualize it, handle it, embrace it. How far you have fallen and repent or change, turn around and do the things you did at first. Now, what did, what did you feel and do when you were first in love with Jesus? Or, or if that doesn't relate to you, when you were first really passionately in love with someone else? See, the first Ephesian church is still doing all the right things. They're believing, they're serving, they're persevering through conflict, they're doing a great job in leadership, they're doing so many things right. But what Jesus is asking of them, some people look at that and say, well, and this is actually one of the problems I used to have with the text, that some people look at this and say, well, this is what Jesus is, Jesus is asking. He's asking that you that if you're like this old kind of stodgy old married couple, he wants you to recover that new, giddy, over-the-top love that you had at first, that, that just kind of really crazy, where you're just walking around going, I, they're, just, they're just perfect, they're just, there's nothing wrong. I mean, just, they could never do anything wrong. I can't hardly stand to be away from that kind, of, that kind of passionate, giddy love that we had at first. I'm not sure that that's the perfect example of what Jesus is asking. But I do think there's at least one helpful application from that idea I used to do a lot more marriage counseling years ago. And, and when a couple would come to me and say they were, they were in significant conflict and trouble, one of the first things I would often do with many of them is ask them to pause and remember the things that attracted them to each other. See, the reality is that over the years, most of those things that attracted us to each other haven't really changed that much, if at all. They're just buried out of sight under the soil of conflict. Or they're forced out of the schedule because we're not managing the pace of life with career and kids and everything else. And we just don't have time for them anymore. Or sometimes we just don't even realize it, but we as a, a spouse are pushing our spouse away in the, in the pain and the difficulty because we haven't processed some things well. And frankly, those same things that we loved about them are still there, but we don't want to relate to them because we're not at a place emotionally where we can get past the pain of the stuff that's unresolved. So we actually hold them off. It's still there. And, and, and there's this life-giving, love-rekindling power in remembering the heights of the history of our love, the reasons we were attracted to one another in the first place. And Jesus is asking us to do the same thing with him because life with him for many of us starts off with this amazed sense of this gift of forgiveness. 
we're forgiven and he loves me as I am. And this infilling sense of the Holy Spirit and the intimacy of God and the, we're hearing his voice or we're sensing his presence and we're seeing answered prayers and we're so exciting. But as life goes on, that's all still there. He's still, we're still completely forgiven. He's still with us. He's still, but, but we begin, we begin deal working out with things like working out our pride or our selfishness or our, our sin so that we can participate not just in the gift of righteousness, but we can actually learn to live in that righteousness and experience the peace Jesus promises us. And the challenge and the suffering of that constant growth process for us, of always feeling like there's something more we need to grow in, buries the memory of the joy of the love of relationship with God and that passion for us. That initial love encounter we had with Jesus, that where, where we were full of wonder, where we were full of praise, where we couldn't hardly go a minute without thanking him for being so good to us and had a desire for him. It's not unlike when you met your, maybe you met your first love or your spouse and you couldn't stop talking about how amazing they were. And then if you're married after a year or two, you realize that they're maybe not as giving as you thought they were, right? And the frustration of them not helping with the dishes or Demanding time alone when you could really use time with them clouds the truth of the original reality. And it changes our habits from praise to asking for change in our relationship. And that's a normal part of relationship, isn't it, that we all face. As a relationship matures, we're all going to face that. So let's talk a little bit more about duty and love. Jesus says you can't survive on duty and faithfulness alone. You need to continually re-engage with that passion of praise, those habits of gratefulness, of remembering the good, of the beautiful, the relationship encounters you've had with God. Not that those past encounters become nostalgia like Sardis and you just sit on them and use them to make yourself feel good, but that they become this fan of the flame of present love and something that raises our expectation and creates habits in our own life that make room for current encounters with God today of his love and his presence. Because the only way we endure long-term with any kind of vibrancy is for love and faithfulness to be yoked as Psalm 85 says. So Jesus says to us, remember those times. Remember what you did to cultivate that passion, that love, and live in that love back then and re-engage doing those things, even if you don't fully feel like it today. Now, will you become stupid, romantic, and love like you were back when you first met you know, someone? I don't think that's really the point. But you will remember and cultivate habits. You will encounter love and be reminded of those feelings and experience some of those feelings again today. And you will be challenged to allow your love to go deeper and wider in the present. You see, the reality is when we were stupidly in love when we first met someone and so romantic and over the top and everything, that love was really rather shallow, wasn't it? It's really exciting and fun to say, I will love you and only you in sickness and in health and good times till death do us part. But then sickness and health happens and sickness and all that stuff. That cycle happens. And and our shallow love is challenged by those vows to become deeper and wider. And we have a choice. It can either become deeper and wider or it can go from love to duty to distance to nostalgia and then to death of the relationship. We have those choices in life. And Jesus is inviting us to the first choice. Jesus is inviting us to that love idea that puts him first, that he becomes 
everything for us in all of life. And it's not just duty, but it's our heart as well. See, living life for the faithfulness and without love is, is actually legalism. It's faith still translating into action, but we've lost the heart of being so loved and loving so others. And when we lose the heart, our deeds for God become trying to give ourselves a sense of security because we need that because there's a void in us. We need that sense of security. And, and that void is only meant to be filled by the perfect love and acceptance and delight of God in us. And that kind of self-fulfilling, duty-filled legalism is not only affects our relationship with God, but it eventually affects our relationship with others because we approach all of our relationships by trying to get that need met in us. So it becomes about me, not about the other person in the relationship. And Jesus says, remember the love and remember the things you did. Cultivate that love so that love burns hotly as the motivation behind your duty, behind your faithfulness. And again, if we don't reignite that love soon enough and continue on, we'll end up being like Sardis, not doing much at all. We find ourselves not having connected with God well for a long time. So we don't pray much. We don't read the Bible much. We attend church less often and we don't maybe go to our small group as much or at all. We don't share our faith much and we don't pray with others much. But we remember nostalgically and we hope for what we had in the past with rose-colored view of what it was, but... We want that. We long for that to be back. To start us, Jesus also says, remember. But he invites them to start by remembering something different than the Ephesian church. It's actually a little even more fundamental than what the Ephesian church is. It says this in verse 3. It says, remember, therefore, what you received and heard and hold it fast and repent. What did they receive and hear? Okay, remember. Sardis is a daughter church of Ephesians, and actually a lot of scholars who look at the church structure back then would equate uh, Sardis to being a little bit more like a campus church, like uh, you might think of Vineyard Columbus has the, uh, the East Campus and the Lane Avenue Campus and the Sawmill Campus. Sardis is a campus of the Ephesian church, and so actually what they learned and received could be encapsulated in Paul's letter of the, to the Ephesians. And if we look at the summary of that, Ephesians 1, what's Paul saying? He's saying, remember that God guarantees you today and in your future every spiritual blessing you need to thrive in this moment today, that you are adopted as sons and daughters of God, that you are co-heirs with Christ, and that is guaranteed for you. And he says, therefore, remember all that and rejoice in that and give thanks for that and have this rich life of praise and thanksgiving. Then he goes on in chapter 2 and says, remember this. This is what you're supposed to remember. This is what you received, Sardis. And he talks about in chapter 2, he starts off by saying how they were once enslaved in sin and then grace came to them. And there's this kind of this connotation there that remembering and reminding them then means take stock of where you are now. See, when we fall prey to to nostalgia, we're not taking stock of the present. We're looking at the past to make us feel good. And he's saying, no, look at your present. Look where you are now. Are you falling again to the slavery that you once had before? Where are you at? Look at your life now. I want you to live in the present right now. When we don't, when we want to see, when we want to avoid the present because things are not as we wish they were, we either look to the future and try to change, or we look to the past and nostalgia to try to make ourselves feel good. And we deal with our own disconnect by blaming others uh, in order to protect our own review of ourselves, our own reputation. 
when what we really need is we need to look inward. We need to deal with our own personal disconnect, and we need to make that happen instead of saying, I'm not connected to God. It's the church's fault. I'm not connected to God. It's my small group's fault. No, it's internal where God is asking us to look for that love and passion to be present in us. And Jesus is saying, remember the truth of what you received and what you were taught and take an honest look at where you are today. And remember the gospel and apply it to your life now, that you are a sinner in need of salvation, that, that, that this relationship of peace and love and security only comes through faith. Paul says it in chapter 2. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, not by good works, not by your reputation, not by your history, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. And if we're God's handiwork, then forget living off of your reputation. God has made you and is making you now and today and in the future to be a masterpiece. And what's he making you for? He's making you to be created in Christ Jesus to do good works, present. He has good things, meaningful things, joyful things, important things for you to be a part of today to make a difference in, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Future tense. God's got them all laid out. They're waiting there, just waiting for you to walk into all those good things he has. See, but the message to both churches is you have allowed your love to grow cold. So cold that it will or already has led you to become passive. I mean, it's kind of the picture of the, the old person rocking on, the, rocking on their rocking chair on the front porch who has so much to offer, but instead they decide to sit on their laurels and tell all the stories of how much good they did in their life, but refusing to live to the full and make a difference right now. If you're alive, if you have breath today, God has called you to make a difference today to not sit on the past of your life. And Jesus says, I want so much more for you. The power of remembering. The positive power of us to remember the love, to remember what you did in that love, to remember the truth, to remember your relationship and whose you are, to remember in a way that leads you to change, that leads you to act now, to stop blaming other people and say, I am responsible for my love relationship with God and only I can fix that. No one else around me can. To remember, to rehearse, to give thanks and praise for the past, not to relive the past, so that we want to go back to it, but to fan the flame that God will show up again and again today and tomorrow. You see, a vibrant life and a vibrant faith is not about good works or a reputation. It's about a real relationship with God, a present God who loves us in the moment, who wants to encounter us in the moment, heart, mind, and body, beliefs, thoughts, emotions, every aspect of us. And sometimes the way we remember we don't have the strength ourselves. Sometimes we remember and, and, and we reconnect is through others. There's a great story that Wendy found this last week and shared it with me, and I wanted to share it with you. It was, it's a story of Jim Baker. He's, uh, some of you that are old enough will remember, he was the infamous televangelist who built a, a media empire worldwide and a, a ministry, and, and he went the way of Ephesus and Sardis. He built a huge reputation, a huge following, and then he lived high off that reputation. And then had an affair, got convicted of fraud, and sentenced to 45 years in prison. And the story is this. He's in, he's in prison in Rochester, Minnesota. 
And while he was in prison for the five years before he got paroled, his job was to clean the toilets and take out the trash, just the worst of the jobs, you know, in the prison. And one morning he's sick with the flu, and he gets up and he puts on his dirty cleaning clothes that they provided for him, the smelly, dirty clothes. He goes and cleans the toilets, and he's so tired at the end, he falls on his bed, can't even change out of the smelly clothes, and he's just shivering, shaking from the flu. And in walks one of the guards and says, come with me. He says, well, where am I going? He goes, I'm going to the warden. You're going to the warden's office. <clears throat> and on the way there, <clears throat> he's getting nervous because he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know why he's going there. He's going, what did I do? What did I do wrong? What are they going to do when I get there? And he gets into the waiting area, and one of the top executives of the warden comes out and says, you have a visitor. Do you want to take the visit? And he's shocked. And he looks down, and he says, he's thinking in his mind, I, I stink. I, I'm, I got stains all over me. My, my toes are sticking out the end of my tennis shoes. And I, did, I look horrible. And all he could get out because of, in his flu, flu and fever-ridden state was, I, 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 I don't know, what do you mean? And the prison executive says to him, didn't anyone tell you? Billy Graham is here to visit you. And he walks into the warden's office, and Billy Graham is there, walks across the rooms, arms wide open, grabs him in a bear hug, and says, Jim, I love you. Can you imagine that moment? The most infamous person to put a stain on U.S. Christianity in our generation, being hugged and told he's loved by the person who has the greatest reputation for integrity and is the most well-known Christian in the world. He experiences God's love. Can you imagine that? See, the one who warns us to wake up and return to our first love before our candle goes out is also the one who comes to us in the darkest and smelliest and hardest places of our life. When we're afraid, he comes to us and hugs us and he says, I love you. And he doesn't want you to live your life full of duty alone. He wants you to live a life of duty and faithfulness knowing that that hug is yours anytime you need it, anytime you want it, that he's going to come to you. He wants that kind of love to be present. See, there's no shame in the warnings he's given. It's only the most beautiful invitation one could ever give. And we have a choice to accept it or not. We have a choice to remember and cultivate the habits of passion and love in our relationship with God, or we have the choice to not accept that visit. And sometimes... It's us. We're the ones who are his hands and feet. We're the ones who give those hugs to people. Jesus closes each one of these lessons to the churches, and he says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. I just want us to do that right now. I want us to each in our own way, if you need to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. If you can't stand it, if you have to keep your eyes open and not, not be distracted, that's fine. But uh, just ask the Holy Spirit, how, how am I doing how am I doing at cultivating time and space in my heart and my thoughts to remember and stoke the passion of love for God, for you in my life? And where is the Holy Spirit both speaking affirmation to you and maybe some correction? I'm just going to give you a moment to sit with that thought and ask God to speak to you.
Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just just waft across this room, just come across this room now. And Lord, that there would be a tangible sense of your hug, of your presence, of your love, and that we would remember not just wanting to be right, not just wanting to live good, not just wanting to live moral, not wanting to just be faithful and duty-filled people, which we do want to be, Lord. We want to be good. We want to be faithful. We want to make a difference. Lord, I pray that you would breathe in each one of us anew and afresh, a passion, a love, a desire for you. You would cultivate that in us and speak to each and every one of us of how you want us to remember, how you want us to re-engage the things that will do that for us, that will connect us to you and allow us to receive your invitation for the visit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.